Jim Whiteout here. Never fear. It is I. Are you ready to uh, snatch your King James only quote unquote friends and family back to reality and away from their overbelief in their Bibles and their persistent ascribing unto God some sort of hyper sovereignty? These knuckle dragging Neanderthal King James cave dwellers shall be utterly defeated by you once you engage them in Greek geek speak techniques and once you learn to implement a pathetic, uh, uh, prophetic, apologetic, and scribal babble learned from each episode of The Divining Lie. Gather together your favorite manuscripts, grab that dusty King James Ahem Bible and a bottle of whiteout, and stack up your lexicons, grammar books, scholarly works, and so on. And let's end this KJV-only madness, shall we? The King James-only crowd will point out that God's name is Jacob in Psalm 24-6. The cultists will say Psalms, plural, when it is actually Psalm singular. Never mind that software... You know, I, I I remember back in the '90s, um, there was a, a big. Some of you, some of you weren't around in the '90s, but um, there was a big push. For something called the Bible Code. Remember this Bible Code book? I lost some friends over that. Lost some supporters over that. I tried to point out then that this stuff is absolutely crazy, but it it comes around every few decades, and it's not just amongst Christians. Muslims do it with the Quran. Shabir Ali has done it with, with the number 19 in the Quran. And I'm pretty certain that I remember some Mormons doing it with the Book of Mormon, too. Uh, and now with computers, it's a whole lot easier to do than it used to be. Um, looking for patterns and, and, and stuff like that. But I blame Rich for this one because he's the one that posted it in, um, in our chat channel. And so I, I clicked on this thing and I, I downloaded it. And here is the um, here is the uh, Facebook screenshot. And you know they're, they're obviously they're trying to mimic my voice using AI. And you know you've got the you know digital picture thing going on there with. Uh, one of my old, very old uh, uh, portraits. And look at, look at what's down in the corner there. This is from one point of the argument. Christ equals 555 times in the Bible. Psalms 103, 1 through 2, 2 center verse of the Bible. 15551 and 15551. Psalm 103, 1 is the... 1611th, so 1611th, see King James, verse in the Psalms. Psalm 132 is 1611 verses before it in the Psalms. Uh, Genesis 1, 1 through 7, exactly 555 letters, obviously, depending on how you count letters. And of course, Hebrew was written differently back then, so this all this wouldn't make any sense. To, Moses would be going, What are you people talking about? Uh, Revelation 12. 22, 17 through 21, exactly 555 letters. You can do this anywhere. Um, the names of every book of the Bible with numbers spelled out in English, of course, is exactly 555 letters. Oh, wow. <laughs> Sorry. It's just, it's just so bad. Uh, this is, 
this uh, this is some guy named Randy Hartinger, and I uh, I did a little looking around and uh, on YouTube, uh, his name was normally associated as the source for Ruckmanite stuff. So for those of you who don't know, there there are Christian King James onlyists, and then there are cultic King James onlyists who are just out in the woods, and Ruckmanism is that kind of um, cultic King James onlyism. And so this comes from that Ruckmanite, wild, crazy stuff. And now combine. Well, it's not now, because the Ruckmanites have been big on numerology and numerics and stuff like that for a long time, actually. But it just demonstrates, look, when you have to do the numerology stuff, that means you really don't trust the Bible's Word of God on its own. When it's actually speaking, when it's actually teaching, when it was actually written, because all this stuff's based upon English. And it's laughable. Like I said, Moses would be going, what? David, they're always sitting around going, what are you guys talking about? We have no earthly idea. Uh, and of course, the the Bible of the early church, Greek Septuagint, didn't number the Psalms the same way. So all that stuff about the middle verse and all the rest of it. It's all modernistic silliness. It is absurdity on a level that is just, it is laughable, but it's sad that there are Christians running around peddling this stuff to people as if this is the basis about upon which you're supposed to believe the word of God rather than the spirit applying the words to your life where you would actually, you know, how many wives did Ruckman have? I forgot how many, but plenty. Um, and so you can do all the Bible numerics you want while you're ignoring that and, you know, um, divorcing wives and doing stuff like that. So anyway, I just thought it was uh, absolutely, Absolutely fascinating uh, to see that. And, uh, oh, I've got my uh, fly friend back. I'm not sure, not sure how they, how long does, can a fly live? Uh, I've got, I've got the, um, I have one of those ultraviolet bug zappers. So if in the middle of the program you hear, uh, we, we finally got, <laughs> I'm in a good mood today. I really shouldn't be. I, I didn't have a good night and I was supposed to be doing stuff this morning that I couldn't do. And, but you know what? Uh, I've, I've been, responding to i've got so much stuff to respond to and um we announced on twitter we will have more of the details out we announced on twitter on sunday that we are arranging a major debate now our dear lutheran pastor brother friend in houston uh is today reaching out i hope today he said it said that things could come up. When you're a pastor of a church, Mondays can be, uh, well, anyway. Um, be reaching out to um, three different people to arrange a series of debates there in Houston. That, you know, uh, when I go Southern route, because if you, if you look at the East-West routes, I drive now, as you know, um, you've got the, the 10, Southern one, and you get into Texas, and over in West Texas, that splits. You got the 20, so you got the 10 going south. The 20 goes a little bit farther north. You got the 40 going all the way across. And so Houston is sort of on my southern, southern route. And when I go to Conway, Arkansas, for example, to teach, which I will be in February of next year, um, Houston is a little out of the way. It's a little bit straighter route to go north, but I can swing through there, you know, as long as you know that you're doing it. Um, 
pastor of the church there in uh, in Houston, Evan, is um, reaching out today to three different people uh, to try to arrange a major debate series in February, coming and going. So do two debates on the way out and two debates on the way back from teaching in Conway. And um, you're going to be interested in all of those debates, going to be very interested in all those debates, hoping that they can work out. I realize trying to get other people's schedule to mesh with mine like that is sort of tough. But we'll see. We'll see. It's maybe far enough away that that it could work. We'll, we'll see how that works out. But we announced on Sunday um, a debate two months from now. It's now less than two months from now, one day less than two months, the 16th of September. And Chris Ironson, many of you know Chris Ironson, um, Iron Sharpens Iron Radio, uh, obviously an individual who was involved in setting up many, many, many of our uh, debates on Long Island. Well, all of the debates on Long Island, really. really. Um, for many, many years, had uh, invited me to speak at a conference that is the weekend before G3. And we've been trying to get somebody to do a debate on something about wokeism, homosexuality, gay marriage, something that's relevant to the current controversies that the church is facing that none of us can hide from. And he was given a name. He didn't write it by me, um, but he reached out and got a positive response and told me, and I was like, you're kidding me. Um, the reason being, let me see if I have the right one up here. Nope, this is not the right one up. Uh, let me see if I can pull it up real quick. Um, yeah, go to the cover. Uh, Kindle, there we go. I can uh, make this big so that uh, we can look at it. Here we go. Um, Dr. James Brownson, Bible, Gender, Sexuality, Reframing the Church's Debate on Same-Sex Relationships. 2013 is the date on the book. And those of you who have been listening for a long time know that probably around 2014, I would assume, is when I uh, pulled this up and started to do a response. Literally what happened was um, Dr. Brownson spoke at... I think it was the second of the Reformation conferences that Matthew Vines did. And Matthew Vines, again, if, if, if this has been a few years back, Matthew Vines, homosexual, did the presentation at a liberal church in Kansas that went viral. And so we did, I think my response to Vines was five hours played all of his presentation, responded to all of it. So it's about five hours long. And then then they, we had the gushy response, the Baptist ethicist who became an ally. And I think that one was six hours long. So it may have been the next Reformation conference that Dr. Brownson spoke at and presented his material, his viewpoints from the book that I was just showing you. We didn't finish the replies. Other stuff came up. Um, it was a little bit, 
more complicated, a little drier than it than, than some of the other stuff. Make a long story short, you know, Matthew Vines had said he would debate me when his book came out, but he never did. And when Brownson's book came out, Vines basically dropped the arguments he had been using back in that presentation he did in the church in Kansas and just started using Brownson. And that's pretty much what has happened since then. Uh, Boswell is still used by some people, but it's very, very dated. And Brownson is now sort of the, the go-to resource for the gay Christian movement, even though Brownson himself is not a homosexual, um, came from a ostensibly reformed background and changed his views on these things primarily due to family issues. But um, so this has been in the back of my mind, that would be a great debate. Uh, Chris didn't know that. Chris Arnson didn't know any of that. He was just given a number and a contact information and, so we made the announcement yesterday, and then we had to follow up on some stuff, some concerns we had um, to make sure that this would be an appropriate thing to do. And conversations took place today, and I have been satisfied anyways that that we can, we can press forward with this. So uh, we will have a graphic up hopefully very soon. Uh, it's in Mannheim, Pennsylvania on September 16th. At a very nice location, evidently, uh, the Republican candidate for governor of um, Pennsylvania uh, had a major campaign event at this particular location. And so it should be really nice for recording and, uh, and things like that. So if all of those work out, um, we could be looking at uh, one of five, six debates uh, by the end of next February. One of them, I'm not, I'll just be honest with you, I'm not excited about it at all, but in, you know, you gotta do what you gotta do. Um, and the, all but one of them <laughs> will be really, really, really um, interesting and useful for everybody. The kinds of debates that will have long lasting, they'll have legs, they'll have legs. And uh, that's kind of, that, that's why, that's the only reason I debate. I've said for years, you know, when I first started debating, didn't have this long forward look, but now that we're doing it, uh, and now that I've gotten older, this is my legacy. This is this is what I leave for my grandchildren. This is what I leave for generations. This is how I encourage others. Um, when I see people coming up and being encouraged, not only here in the United States, but I had a dear friend. I know he listens to the program, so. Um, Dear, dear brother, uh, he doesn't know how much he means to me, um, overseas, who was, who needed uh, information on a particular theological topic that I preached on at Apologia Church numerous times. The poor man listened to all of those sermons, and sometimes like eight sermons in a day, and I was just apologizing all over myself to him. Um, but he's had to take that information. Now he is preaching that and he is using that and he's even thinking about a book in that area that's that's why you do this stuff to pass it on not to puff yourself up but to pass it on uh, to you know to make it valuable for for years and years in the future and that's why I was initially a little bit concerned about the Brownson debate because you know I spent six months minimally preparing to debate Bart Ehrman and John Dominic Crossland 
each one. Probably about four months uh, with um, name just escaped me. Uh, another individual I debated back in that time period. Um, I spend a lot of time because I want these, you know, I, I've, I've lamented since 2020 the advent of online debates where you've got a bunch of guys and they've got a fan going in the background, they're in their t-shirt, and they arranged the debate the day before. I'm sorry, I don't consider that a debate, and I'm not going to waste my time with it. Um, a real debate has really prepared individuals who have thought through, they've listened to the other side. Now, yeah, I can count on one hand the number of people I've debated who actually prepared to debate me and did so appropriately. Um, I think of the one Roman Catholic fellow that I debated on Unbelievable, and then we debated in Belfast. Um, he actually listened to my positions. And that made the debate so much better, and I respect the guy because of that. We also debated in Dublin. Um, or was that London? I was London. Sorry. I was in London, but also in Belfast. Anyway, um, and uh, my, my, my Muslim friend, in uh, in Sydney, uh, likewise, uh, took the time to read my book and tried to express his perspective in our language so we can understand. That is so, so, so unusual. But the point is, I show respect for the audience and the topic and the opponent by studying their position. And so two months is a short period of time. Brownson's book is, is uh, scholarly. And, I mean, I remember my objections to it from nearly a decade ago, uh, but I'm going to have to go back through it again, and I'm going to have to go back through my comments on it and what everybody else has said in response to it. Um, and I had heard of a fellow uh, that had written a dissertation on Brownson's book, and lo and behold, hey, he follows me on Twitter. And so we're hooking up, and he's going to send me that. And so... The point is, my next two months could be, um, some of you will remember back before the Bart Ehrman debate, that I would do entire dividing lines just on specific points of Bart Ehrman's criticisms. So I like to sort of bring this audience along in the process of preparation for these things. And so we'll see how much we're going to do that. I mean, I've got so much here today, Roman Catholicism, Unitarianism, all sorts of things like that. Uh, we are... We are on the front lines, and I'll, I'll just say, we don't talk about this much, but, you know, if you appreciate being on the front lines with us, if you appreciate uh, the amount of time that goes into the preparation and the material and the background research and everything else that goes along with it and the studio that we're sitting in and the RV that I'm sitting in while I'm still on the road, get home next week, um... You know, we need your support to be able to continue to do these types of things. If you appreciate, you know, we get into some topics where there's just nobody else addressing these things and making these things and making presentations on these things to a wider audience. Uh, we sort of demythologize scholarship on this program. And if you appreciate that, um, ailmin.org, donate page. You can do the travel fund. You can do the regular fund. Regular fund needs... <laughs> needs if, if, if the regular fund doesn't get anything coming in, the travel fund ain't going to be worth worth anything to us anyways. So uh, please uh, please feel free to support us in that way. Now, 
So I want to get to some um, Deity of Christ material. Because um, I love that. I mean, I, every one of the sheep of Christ love to delve into the Word of God that reveals the glory of our Savior. He is called the Lord of Glory. Uh, that was one of my favorite books. I highly recommend it to you. If you can track down a copy of B.B. Warfield's The Lord of Glory, get it. Especially as we're dealing with Unitarianism. Especially as we're dealing with somebody who deny the deity of Christ. Man, YouTube is filled with these guys. I mean, it's everywhere. Um, jump in there and get a copy of The Lord of Glory. B.B. Warfield it had a huge impact on me. I remember, I don't know why, I remember sitting in a lab... Uh, at Grand Canyon, um, early on, yeah, it was early on in my in my career. As uh, it's probably been nineteen eighty two, eighty three, somewhere in that. Well, eighty three, probably, uh, maybe eighty four. Uh, reading that book and just being so blessed by the insights. Warfield on the Trinity is just uh, has. Well, I've said many many times. I'm a Warfieldian on that level. Uh, I've learned that I have disagreements with him in other areas, but I'm so thankful that I can be very appreciative of Christians, even though we don't necessarily see eye to eye. I was chatting with Michael Brown today. <gasps> you know, I'm sure we'll be doing a sweater vest dialogue with Doug Wilson soon. <laughs> you know, just all you people just need to get a life. Anyway, uh, so if you get the Lord of Glory, but. People of God love to hear about their glorious Lord. And um, so this topic just means a lot to me. And it's, as I've said, it's attached to everything else. If we're going to talk about the enthronement of Christ in Daniel chapter 7, and that he has given a kingdom and a dominion that will never pass away, well, if he's just a creature... Um, that's completely different than if he is the incarnate Son of God, eternally the creator of all things. Totally different. And so this is vital to everything else. We're not abandoning other topics. I mean, there's all sorts of stuff we could talk about today, all sorts of, you know, the enslavers are still doing their enslaving. The WEF is out there, you know, having the, the communists speak at their stuff. I mean, the communism is on World March all that stuff is there. It's true. Um, the only answer to all of that stuff is found in Christ. And so, if he's not who he claimed to be, it changes everything. Changes everything. Okay, so, what I want to do here, and I'm, I'm going to try to be brief. There is so much that I could add to this um, that it's not even funny. And unfortunately window get out of here um there he is <laughs> honestly i have so much stuff on this one poor little screen over here that i think it's going to melt down <laughs> in fact i have a key i have to keep an eye on my battery level for some reason okay 100 percent good for some reason i'm having mac power problems and sometimes when i do graphic stuff and this is a fairly new macbook pro that battery will start going down and i'm plugged in I'm running on power. Brand new. It doesn't matter which power support, power supply I've got. Anything. It's uh, and it crashed on me um, yesterday. Yeah, last evening, two percent died, and I'm like, how did that happen? I didn't see that happening. But anyway, 
uh, something we need to deal with. But I've got so much stuff here that um, <laughs> that I'm going to lose something some, somewhere along the lines. And half of you just enjoy watching me going, what's going on here? Uh, all right, so here we go. I uh, Day before yesterday, I think it was. I think it was Saturday. Um, had a little bit of a back and forth on Twitter with Trent Horn of Catholic Answers. And give you some, some background here. Go back three months, four months, somewhere around there. There was a debate on Sola Scriptura, and we commented on some aspects of it. And one of the main comment, main things that I commented on was um, Trent Horn's utilization. And since I have Kindle open here, uh, Trent Horn's utilization of this book. And I'll just pop the whole screen up. I won't matter. It doesn't matter here. The Invention of the Inspired Text, John C. Poirier. Um, it's a TNT Clark 2022 uh, book. I have the hard copy at home. I didn't bother to drag it with me uh, on my trip right now. But uh, you'll remember that Trent Horn threw out in that debate the conclusions of this book in regards to the meaning of Theonustos. Now, by the way, in this video, Trent goes into pronunciation, how you're supposed to, you should say Theopneustos and stuff like that. And he goes to Mounts. Look, um, I, I first taught Mounts. See, I did William Hersey Davis the first couple times I taught Greek, but I know when I first taught Greek for Golden Gate Baptist Theological Seminary, that would have been eh, 90, 95, 96, somewhere in there. I'd have to look it up now. But it was in the mid-90s, and I taught Mounts. So I, I know how Mounts says to pronounce stuff. Um, big deal. Uh, I'm sticking with what works and what is uh, most natural. Anyway, he presented Poirier's conclusion that Theonoustos does not mean God breathed. He, he calls it the, the vivification perspective. The vivica vivification. It gives life. Now, um, if you studied something called semantic domains, and this is central to Poirier's um, thesis, he's 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 going back into church history. And he specifically, and a number of times makes reference to the massive work that B.B. Warfield did on the meaning of Theonostos. And he's trying to counteract that. He's trying to say, we have more information now, which we do, uh, that Warfield did not have access to. But he's not approaching what needs to be recognized from the start. I, I don't know what this author's background is. He doesn't seem to be a Catholic. He seems to be somewhat of a progressive, liberal Protestant of some type, but I can't find any more information about him. It's about all he's done. And his conclusions lead me to view him as less than conservative, certainly less than B.B. Warfield was. Because, for example, he does not believe that Paul wrote 2 Timothy. 
So Theonoustos is found in a forged letter. It has Paul's name on it, but he didn't write it. It's, it's pseudonymous. Well, okay. That's still a forgery. And what that means is you do not have to be nearly as concerned about consistency across the Pauline corpus as a person who believes that Paul wrote all these things and therefore you should allow Paul to interpret Paul. You don't have to worry about that once this is just a disciple and you can separate that out. You see, And that impacts things. That impacts how you read the material. And so uh, what is happening in this book is you are you're using, for example, the TLG databases, the SARS Lingua Greci. Now, I was one of the early subscribers to the TLG. I use I started using the TLG in man, I forget when it was. It was a big investment on the part of our ministry. I'm not being very brief, am I? No, I'm not. Uh, it was a big investment as part of our ministry to just you back then what you did it wasn't available online you you rented the CD and there was a uh, you know we now have a subscription online but the software to access the database on the CD was not nearly as nice as it is now online but it was functional and what you could do with that is it was basically a catalog of all known Greek literature in Greek searchable and so i remember i used i remember specifically one of the 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 places i used it was when um jeff neal and i were writing the same sex controversy one of my questions was the meaning of arsenicoites because there are pro-homosexual writers that try to use a much later use of that term um and say well it, it it only has this very narrow meaning or this very narrow meaning. And so I use the TLG databases to to look up the use of arsenicoites in Greek literature, just broadly. And that's when I uh, discovered there was, there was one possible reference before Paul, but the dating on it was very uncertain. So most scholars think Paul is the first one to use it. Doesn't necessarily mean he coined it. He may have. He may have gotten it from a rabbinic source. But there is one other reference, and if I recall correctly, I did, yeah, I, I'm pretty certain I have a footnote on that in the same-sex controversy, which I derived from the TLG CD-ROM. So, Poirier's using TLG, which I've been using for decades, together with semantic domain studies. It's philology. It's a study of of... And any term has a semantic domain. So, for example, logos has a massive domain. And context can only tell you where in its massive domain the meaning is being assigned. But there are other terms that have very, very narrow semantic domains. And this is an important aspect of, of studying um, you know, the lexicography and linguistics and the development. Classical Greek coming before Koine Greek. How, for example... Uh, well, the vocative was was falling away in the Koine period and being replaced by the nominative. You know, this this impacts how you how words are seen over time. Anyways, this is stuff I was studying back in Bible college and seminary, using these resources. And so I have a basis for analyzing Poirier's um, argumentation. This is stuff that I've been dealing with for a fairly lengthy period of time. And so. Uh, 
we made some, I made some comments because I found it very strange. The Roman Catholic would be using what seems to be a non-Roman Catholic source of scholarship that, as far as I know, has not been um, approved by, cited by, made the new official position by the Roman Catholic Magisterium. I just find it very odd that a study like this, a sort of one-off, a little bit out in the woods, brand new, hasn't really been reviewed, hasn't made much of a splash. I wouldn't have heard about it if Trent Horn hadn't mentioned it. And yet, all of a sudden, in, in the video we're about to look at, Trent Horn says, this is the, the death knell of Sola Scriptura. And I'm like, wait a minute. Um, aren't you a Roman Catholic? <laughs> Shouldn't this be coming from the Pope? Um, Shouldn't this be coming from the church? Are you telling me that it took a non-Roman Catholic scholar almost 2,000 years after the death of Christ to discover something that the magisterium, the Roman Catholic Church, hasn't known for all this time? How useful would this have been to you guys since the time of the Reformation? This just seems so weird. This is personal. This is just personal interpretation. This is the very stuff that we've been warned against all along. And, and the other thing is, in all my debates with Roman Catholics, with Father Mitchell Pacwa, uh, with Patrick Madrid, um, with all sorts of folks from Catholic Answers, Jerry Matitix, who used to be with Catholic Answers. I'm not going to let you guys forget that. He was. He was your darling. I still have the pictures. Still have the old Disc Rock magazines. Oh, yeah. Um, no one ever disputed this subject. This is the first time it's ever been brought up. I've debated Sola Scriptura against Catholic Answers, guys. How many times? And now, all of a sudden, in 2022, we have the new magic bullet from a non-Catholic. I don't know. This whole thing seems really strange to me. Really, really strange to me. So, I have not been brief here. <laughs> so, I'll have to try to be now. Um, you know what I can do? Let's try this. Ha-ha! <laughs> I have been made a monster. <laughs> okay, let's, um, let's catch a couple of... of Trent's statements here and do some quick interaction. Okay, here we go. There are a lot of definitions of sola scriptura, but one popular definition says that scripture is the sole infallible rule of faith for the church. There can be other rules of faith like traditions and church councils, but they're always subordinate to scripture. Of course, what this really means is that they're always subordinate to an individual's interpretation of scripture. If I forget to turn the sound back on, please forgive me. Lots of buttons to push uh, to do it this way, but we're, we'll, we'll do our best. Um, okay, so just really quickly, um, generally an accurate definition of sola scriptura, but then follow with the idea that scripture cannot speak with any authority because all you have outside of Rome is your personal interpretation. And I just, we, we step back and I go, um, could we note something else? Um, I know a lot of Roman Catholics and I know a lot of Roman Catholic um, apologists 
and Roman Catholic scholars, and they all have differing interpretations of everything Francis says. Every, every time there is an encyclical released from Rome, what happens? Oh, the disagreements. Oh, the personal interpretations. And so it's real, it, it's, the, it's the Catholic Answers thing. They've always done this. To try to make it look like, well, we have the Pope, and we have certainty, and we have, you know, and all you guys have all, all this just different interpretations to look at. I just remind you, and I keep forgetting to pull it up, but I need to. Go watch my debate with Mitch Pack on Soul Scriptura from 1999 in San Diego. It's before I shaved my head. <laughs> I should have shaved before then, but anyway. Um, in my closing statement, I bring this big book bag out, and I open it up, and I start getting all these Roman Catholic books out. Can decrees the Council of Trent and the commentary on this and a big stack of canon law and all the rest of this stuff. And I said, what we're being told is you need this to understand Romans 5.1. No, Romans 5.1 is actually clear enough to understand in your own. Uh, that's what you need to do. And that's been the Catholic Answers thing for a long, long time. Um, and, it's, and it's a shame that they continue doing that, but we just continue to point it out and uh, need to do so. Always subordinate to an individual's interpretation of Scripture, since it's the individual who decides which traditions on baptism or salvation cohere with Scripture. But regardless, Scripture is the only infallible rule of faith. But why should we believe that's true? Scripture never says it's the only infallible rule of faith. Okay, now... Uh, the problem, of course, with the standard Catholic Answers argumentation, all of it ignores the consistency of Scripture itself. Um, now, this may be something that escapes many of them because they don't have consistency in Rome. Uh, and this has never been more clear than now with Francis. Any honest person knows that what Francis believes theologically is not what was, was believed by any pope even 100 years ago, and going back in time. So you don't have the glorious consistency of Scripture that we have upon which to do hermeneutics and, and things like that. So that sort of does cause a bit of a, uh, of a problem. I continue here. That's true. Scripture never says it's the only infallible rule of faith. And the arguments given for this position often engage in circular reasoning. Okay. Um, scripture never says it's the only foul rule of faith. Of course, it never says anything about popes or cardinals or Rome as the head of the church, papal infallibility. Uh, but it does tell us that Scripture is unique and beyond any use of the term tradition. So keep your eye on the ball. Always keep your eye on the ball when listening to Trent Horn and Catholic Answers and talking about Sola Scriptura because they will use one set of standards for Sola Scriptura and another set of standards for the infallibility of the church. They'll use one set of arguments against the Bible being sufficient and then when it comes to explaining away Whatever today's wild statement from Francis was, totally different standard, totally different place to go. Um, and when he talks about circularity, 
Let's remember something. When it comes to a discussion of ultimate authorities, they have to be circular. They have to be circular. Because you see, an ultimate authority cannot appeal to an authority above it to verify its authority because then that's no longer the ultimate authority. So eventually you have to get to something that has within it what is necessary to be an ultimate authority. For us, it's the God-breathed scriptures. It's the unique nature of divine revelation. It's when Jesus said in Matthew 22 that have you not read what God spoke to you saying? And that wasn't a reference to tradition. That was in reference to scripture. So it's unique in and of itself. And what Rome is saying is, that's us. That's the, that's the church. That's the, the infallible magisterium, however they want to define it, depending on where they are in church history. Don't want to do that during the pornocracy. But again, church history is a little bit of a problem for Rome's claims. But that's us. And so they literally have to say that the church possesses within it that which makes it an ultimate authority. And I say that is nowhere taught in Scripture. In fact, it's contradicted Scripture. The church must be reformed by the voice of Christ. The church, Christ's sheep hear his voice. They never substitute their own voice. That's a vitally important aspect that must, must, must be kept um, in mind. One of the key pieces of evidence for Sola Scriptura comes from massive assumptions about a single word in the New Testament, and that when you look at the actual evidence, the case for Sola Scriptura collapses as a result. The case for Sola Scriptura collapses as if all we ever do is quote 2 Timothy 3.16. That's all we ever do. Now, is it important? Of course it is. So is 2 Peter 1. So is Matthew 22. Um, there are a number of passages that I have argued um, since Answers Catholic Claims came out in late 1989, early 1990. Um, it's never been some simplistic... The, the idea you would get if you were listening to this presentation is, well, all they do is just quote uh, Theonustos over and over and over again. He has a bunch of of, of video clips, um, including Jeff Durbin, myself, number of people, um, talking about Theonustos and talking about the scriptures being God-breathed and, and all that kind of stuff. Okay, great. Is that all we've ever presented? Of course not. Not even close. Not even close. There is a consistency between Jesus' teaching that the scriptures are God-speaking and they're, they are... I mean, I don't know how you could fit this with Poirier's vivification reading, um, but have you not read what God spoke to you saying? God spoke to those Sadducees in Scripture, in words that had been written down 1,400 years earlier. That has nothing to do with vivification. It has to do with judgment. It has to do with judgment. And men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Which is why no prophecy of Scripture comes by the prophet's own um, will. It has nothing to do with vivification. 
It has to do with revelation and the nature of Scripture, which fits with Theanustas as God breathed and the results of Warfield's study, Warfield believing that Paul actually wrote it. I mean, we're just talking consistency here. That's all. So the case for Solus Scriptura collapses. <laughs> Trent, come on. When you, when you make this kind of overblown statement, you're just begging to be refuted. You're begging for, for someone to come along and say, wow, someone has a real surface level understanding of what we're talking about here. Um, why use this kind of language? I don't get it. it it's, it's a little bit strange, but anyway. we uh, Like I said, I was going to try to be um, brief, and so I'm trying to rein myself in here. One argument I hear from Protestant apologists is that scripture is the sole infallible rule of faith for the church because it's ontologically unique. As far as we know... Exactly. Um, that's me <laughs> being referenced there. And that's, that's great. It is ontologically unique. Are you saying it isn't? Because fundamentally that is Rome's claim. Now this is where, this is where I think, this is why they want to go this direction. Because they have struggled for years now with this argument. Um, when I asked Mitch Pacwa, uh, 25, 24 years ago, no, yeah, 24 years ago, when I asked, asked Mitch Pacwa, is there any word Jesus ever spoke that um, has been dogmatically defined by Rome that is not found in Scripture? He said, no, there, we have nothing. Anything the apostles ever said that has been defined dogmatically by Rome, but it's not found in Scripture. Nothing. But in light of doctrines such as papal infallibility and the bodily assumption of Mary, there is a revelatory nature to what Rome has come up with. Because no one can actually argue that either of these concepts are found anywhere, implicitly, explicitly, or any isitly at all, in Scripture. It's just not there. And so... Maybe this is now the idea that, well, yeah, we can have something that is like Scripture by denying the ontological uniqueness of Scripture as being God-breathed. And that's why I said a few months ago when this debate came out, I said, this is a dangerous direction to go. This is a dead end. Have you noticed it's not progressivist Roman Catholics that do Catholic apologetics? It's only conservatives. You can only take this so far before it turns on you and bites you. You can't do it. I mean, you're sort of stuck with it with the current Pope. And as far as the next Pope's coming up, um, you look at the candidates in the College of Cardinals, and I'm not sure you can bang a Yui and come back to anyone nearly as conservative as only 100 years ago, let alone a John Paul. So... Maybe this is the only direction you can go, but it's it's a dead end. It's a dead end all the way. No no two ways about it. Um Okay. And we go to here. This is sort of fun to do. I'm, I'm enjoying this. It'd be easier if somebody else was doing it, but I'm doing it myself. And so far, we've survived. More importantly, these apologists claim that if something is not Theopneustos, it cannot be an infallible rule of faith for the church. What we're saying, obviously, is that 
an infallible rule of the faith, infallible rule of faith of the church must be that which is divine in origin. It has to have God's authority, not a lesser authority. Because if it's a lesser authority, if it comes from the church itself, now the church becomes its own authority. Oh, and that's sola ecclesia, which is what I've been saying you guys believe all along. Because it is what you believe all along. It, it has been. Always has been. And no matter how hard you try, uh, you, you, can't, you can't get away from it. That is what y'all believe. It, it just, 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 just be honest about it. The word must have this meaning because that's what theos and panuma mean. But that is what the Protestant scholar D.A. Carson called the root fallacy. Now, what he then, then did here, now come on, Trent. He's not, these, these Protestants, they're just, you know, just it, it's because it's theos and pneuma, and, and that, that's. Um, Trent, I don't believe you've actually read Warfield. I have. Decades ago. And I can read all of his languages. Uh, I can make my way. I've taught Greek, Hebrew. I've taken Latin. Um, not, I, I'm not bad with German. My Wortschatz is ein bisschen klein. Ich habe keine Leute mitzusprechen. But I can read Warfield and I can analyze Warfield just as I can analyze Poirier. And so... What you're doing here is you're doing the, I'm going to refute the simplistic arguments and gain myself some credibility in the process. And yet the, all the people that you showed, we all, we all read Carson a long time ago. I was teaching my students the basics of what Carson was saying in exegetical fallacies in the 90s. So don't go there. Unless you were teaching these things in the 90s, in your Greek classes, which I don't think you were. Um, I don't think you were. Next one is what sort of caused our conversation. Um, and so here we go. Word. The other problem with determining what Theopneustos means is that it only appears once in the Bible. Greek scholars use the fancy term haplax legomena, but you can just call it a one of a kind. Now, what happened was, when I first saw a tweet from Trent um, talking about this video, announcing this video, it said haplax legomena with an L. And I'm like, um, it's Hapox Legomena, and I just, I just corrected it and moved on. I didn't make a big deal out of it. I just figured it was a typo. I hadn't watched the video yet. And so then when I started listening to the video, I'm like, he really thinks it's Hapox. Now, what does that mean? Well, anyone in New Testament studies, anyone who does exegesis regularly and interacts with critical commentaries and stuff like that, knows what a hapax legomena is, and you know what it comes from. Uh, legomenoi, a term used, for example, in 1 Corinthians 8, they're so-called gods, things that are named, they're called something. So legomenoi, to be named, hapax is used especially in Hebrews. It means once, once for all. Ephapox in the uh, strengthened form of it, which also occurs in Hebrews. Ironically, about what? The once-for-all sacrifice of Christ. 
Um, you can't have an unbloody propitiatory representation over and over and over and over and over and over and over again in light of what Hebrews teaches of, about the hapax and perfecting death of Christ. So it's somewhat ironic that it would be the same term. But hapax, once. So hapax legomena, named once, only appears once in the New Testament canon. And so, yes, Theonustos is a hapax legomena. But when I realized that Trent didn't, wasn't even familiar with the terminology, what that tells me is we're not talking about someone who is in a position to actually critically analyze what Poirier's argument is. Because if you don't know hapax legomena, you probably don't read Greek. And if you don't read Greek, you're probably not using the TLG CD-ROM or now TLG website. You're probably not familiar with the Thoros and Gregreki. You probably have not done semantic studies in lexicography, semantic domains, familiar with lexicons that are based upon semantic domains, things like that. You're not in a position to be analyzing what Poirier is saying. And especially to proclaim his work as the death of Sola Scriptura just leaves me going, um, what? I, talk about reaching. Reaching way past what your own studies would allow you to even begin to critically present. And so that's why I, say, I just find this really, really strange. Just going to do one more because I've got a bunch of stuff yet to get to and we're, we're already right at the top of the hour. But there was a, one other thing I wanted to grab here really quickly. At least today, there's more to, more to say. Uh, check this out. Most Protestant Sola Scriptura arguments, though, use the word in this way. In order to be an infallible rule of faith, X must be Theopneustos. Only Scripture is Theopneustos. Therefore, only Scripture is an infallible rule of faith. Okay, let's correct this, all right? And I'm just going to leave that up there so you can see it. You don't need to... Uh... Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, there we go. Uh, we can hide up there, little little corner, so we can see the stuff on the bottom. In order to be an infallible rule of faith, X must be theonistos, only scripture is theonistos, therefore only scripture is an infallible rule of faith. Notice what the focus is. The focus is not on the supernatural, unique, unique ontology of scripture that can then provide an infallible rule of faith. In other words... It's not the focus isn't upon the supernatural voice of the shepherd being heard by the sheep. And this makes sense because we have fundamentally different views of these relationships. Coming from a church is all church defines all perspective, like a Roman Catholic would, then this makes sense. That's not even where we're coming from. Um the argument would be, since Scripture is God speaking, it is then ontologically capable of functioning as the infallible rule of faith for the church. Only Scripture is theonustos, and the only example of anything that is theonustos that is in possession of the church is scripture. Therefore, only scripture can function as the infallible rule of faith. Everything else is ontologically inferior to 
and must be judged by Scripture, which is why we have Jesus teaching that in the Gospels in regards to the Korban rule and the claims that Jews made that they had a revelation from God that came down outside of Scripture. And Jesus rebukes them and says, you teach commandments that are simply doctrines of man, you, you, you void the word of God. So there you have um, that aspect of things uh, as well. So uh, I, just, I just really, I, I said this on the dividing line, um, and I, I repeat it now. This is a dangerous direction for Catholic apologetics to go. It may be necessary for them, but it's very dangerous. The end, really, is where the Jesuits are today. <laughs> and if you know where the Jesuits are today, they are... They don't do apologetics anymore. <laughs> they, they have no basis upon which to do so. And, you know, that could be the death knell of that stuff, but, okay, well, if that's the way it is, that's the way it is. All right. Do need to... Oh, man. Yep, yep. Got to gotta press on. Um, let me uh, see if I can get... If I can rouse um, Rich from the dead. I have undoubtedly put him into uh, a coma uh, back there in, uh, in Phoenix. And I'm uh, looking to see... Uh, press on. Okay. Uh, we've got some clouds and storms rolling in here. Okay. All right. I thought... I was looking outside going, man, it's looking really gray. Okay, we'll see. We'll see. It would be nice. Pretty warm today here in um, where I am. Anyway, all right, let me show you a couple of, uh, yeah, let, let's do this this way so I can wrap up with um, the I am sayings. As I said before, having a lot of fun dealing with the uh, uh, Unitarians on the internet, and one of them is Anthony Bertabai. Um, Young fella, uh, I, I don't take him seriously. He has no background. He has no ability to engage in arguments, stuff like that. The, the usefulness of it is he says it's Dale Tuggy that made him a Unitarian. And so what you see in his irascible, nasty, offensive, blasphemous language is where Unitarianism leads. The, the, the better Unitarians try to sort of keep some of that hidden, but he's just straight up with it and throws stuff out there. And the process makes some major, major errors. So uh, this one, somebody else was having an interaction with him. Um, and he he says, uh, they claim that Granville Sharp rule is valid. It's Granville, misspelled. Granville Sharp rule is valid. When Thomas says Greek, the Lord of me and the God of me, John 20, 28, where two articles are present before each noun, then the GSR, Granville Sharp Rule, magically does not apply. Convenient. Devout Trinitarians are wicked. Now notice that. Notice notice what happens there. Oop, let's go down. Bing. Hey, oh no. Rich, I'm, I'm little teeny tiny again. <laughs> um, that's, yeah. Mm. Uh-oh. And I, I see the computer over here moving. And so he who sits behind the veil... <laughs> So evidently, I can't move it um, without messing that thing up. 
There's there's a way to fix that. You and I both know. There is a way to fix that. That's a little bit better for now. Uh, but it's still not where we were. But anyway, we'll uh, we'll just use it for now. He's still playing with stuff. Okay. The young man doesn't have any idea what Granville Sharp rule is. He can't spell it, which means he's never read anything about it. He doesn't know what the rule actually states. Because when he says um, uh, where two articles are present before each noun. Well, there's not two articles before each noun, first of all. And even if there was... And he seems to think... He doesn't understand article, chi, no article. So he doesn't even know what it is. Doesn't recognize. And the vast majority of seminary graduates do not know this either. The Granville Sharp rule that comes into play in Titus 2.13 and 2 Peter 1.1, throughout 2 Peter's five Granville Sharp instructions in 2 Peter, um, is one of a set of rules. Five or six, depending on how you count them. How do I know that? Because I tracked down through something called interlibrary loan. Wow, that was a while back. Interlibrary loan. Granville Sharp's original stuff. His original work. Read it, used it in my uh, Operation Eye Strain. Operation Eye Strain. This was 1984, I believe, um, when I examined in all of Paul's writings and all of Peter's writings, because Titus, Paul, Second Peter, Peter, in all of Paul's writings and all of Peter's writings, I had to sit there. My wife remembers me doing this. Um, because we didn't have computers yet. I mean, I had a computer to type stuff up, but we didn't have Bible programs. It would be easy to do this with a Bible program now, well, if you know your syntax. But I had to sit there with the Greek New Testament and look at every chi, the word and, in all of Paul and all of Peter to see if it fell into the Granville Sharp set of rules more than one. And so the paper that I wrote on that years and years ago um, was the result of that paper, eyes, pen, yellow pad work that was hours and hours and hours of studying. Now, Anthony doesn't do anything like that. He's never done anything like that. He can't read. He doesn't wouldn't know the difference between Kai, Gar, Theos, or anything else. doesn't read Greek. But he pretends to make conclusions and call people wicked based upon his own ignorance. This is this is Twitter for you. This is what Twitter gets you. It's strange. Very strange. Um, so, uh, there you have a, a statement about Granville Sharp's rule. Uh, remember this one? Uh, here, here's, here's one. Really? Because the Bible is pretty confusing to see Jesus and Paul call the Father God exclusively, and then cultists like White push another agenda. One, they burned people alive for rejecting. God is not the author of confusion. James White and his Trinitarian cultists are. And what I, <laughs> what I, what I, what I find interesting here is some of you may remember back in 1999, I debated... Um, was it Saban that I was that the guy that I debated? Because the whole the whole debate isn't available. Well, it might be an audio. Um, Chris Arnson arranged it in 1999, 
And one of the arguments in the like the second presentations or the rebuttal period or something like that one was you can't believe these guys because they burned people. And I'm like, my forefathers got burned for all sorts of things. It's not gonna not relevant to the debate here. Look, could we could we stick with scripture? But here it is again. Burn people alive in all caps. <laughs> well, um, okay, all right. Well, it, it's there. There you go. Um, so there's, there's a couple of others here that are, are, are useful to look at. Um, I've got one here, very interesting. Uh, can't be 100% God, 100% man. That's a contradiction. Again, just the circularity of the Unitarian thought process. You can't just can't even allow for something as big as the scriptures to, uh, uh point out these things. And it's on... Sermon audio, okay, yeah, all right. The whole thing, I think, yeah, and you'll have that in there. Here is a real example, though, of Unitarianism in in full flower. Um, blah, blah, blah. My God is too big to have become a man, get hung on a piece of wood, and killed by his creation. You guys are demonic. The Bible says God cannot die, but keep being delusional, I guess. Now, what, is, what does that remind you of? Where have you heard that? From the Muslims. From the Muslims. That's how many times in the debates I've done Muslims around the globe, South Africa, Durb, uh, uh, well, Durban, um, in, um, we were in, uh, in Scotland. When uh, that almost that exact question came from the audience during the Q and A period from a Muslim, and that's why I said, you know, Unitarianism. Ah, I, I fell off the screen. Here, oh wait a minute, help! <laughs> I've got to see. I can't see Rich anymore, so I've got to do something to. Um, have fun. So I was crawling, crawling back on the screen. <laughs> He's going. Would you shut up and continue on? Okay, I can't hear him saying that. I, I can't. I'm not going to say he's actually saying that, but I probably was fairly close. Anyway, th this is what Unitarianism is all about, and it's the exact same type of stuff you get from so many Muslims. Um, and it's just, it's just an utter rejection of the gospel. The, the condescension of the Lord of Glory, the incarnation—it just says it says a lot to me uh, about what Unitarianism is about. But we are running out of time, so I need to get to because this is going to take a little bit. Uh, I'll skip the First uh, Corinthians eight uh, one that I had queued up. This is the one that I said I would be dealing with, so we'll we'll get to it. Uh, Jesus forgot the entire last half. No, the divine name is not I am, it is the one. Ego I me, at least he did it in English this way, he cannot spell it in Greek no matter how often he's corrected. Ego I me is just a Greek way of saying yes. Well, it's not, obviously. Otherwise, the man Jesus healed in John 9, 9 is God too. Thanks for playing. So you, you see, you know, you get you get the standard mockery that this guy's all about, that's... that. He is a projectionist, by the way. I mean, he projects on everybody else everything he himself does. So he says, that's all I ever do is mock and whine and stuff. And I'll provide him with <laughs> this much argumentation from the Greek Septuagint. 
He can't respond to a bit of it, but I'm I'm the one doing all this stuff. But the point is, and this is the, tune in here. Um, what he's talking about. Let's um let let let's let's do this. We've done it before on the program, uh, but let's let's do it again. Uh, it's been a long time since we did it, and we're going to dig in here. And I'll I promise to get done um, within half an hour. <laughs> But look, I'm putting a cordance up. And for some of you, that's that's what you want. And that's what you're going to get is, uh, is a cordance. All right. Love a cordance. The I Am Sayings of Jesus. In the Gospel of John, and in Mark, by the way, but John is doing this very, very purposefully, puts it in particular places. We have repeated utilization of the phrase ego I mean. And it is used in uh, John 9.9, 9, uh, the, uh, the blind man is healed, is emphatically identify himself. Yeah, that's me. He does use it that way. But that doesn't fit with the other places that are found in John. And so let's take a look at them. I would obviously highly recommend to all ministers, but to everybody who wants to be prepared to deal with Unitarians, Jehovah's Witnesses, any Mormons, um, well, sort not Mormons, not quite as much because they're polytheists, but Muslims. To be aware of these passages and to be able to present them in context—that's the key. The key is to present this material in context. Okay. So let's start with John eight twenty four, and in John eight twenty four, uh, you have Jesus. He is dialoguing with the Jews. Uh, he says in 823, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. Those are not the wor words of, by the way, of some mere man. Uh, this is one who recognizes his ontological difference from those around him. But then verse 24, I'll get it up here so that I'm not blocking it on the screen. Ipon un humin hati apathnaista entais hamartiais humon. Ian gar me pistuseta hati ego aimi. Apathnaista entais hamartiais humon. I said therefore to you that you will die in your sins. For unless Ian may. Pistuseta, unless you believe, what? Hati ego I mean, that I am. You will die in your sins. Now, here's what Unitarians do. And I've read, again, when I wrote The Forgotten Trinity, uh, late 90s, I read numerous Unitarian arguments, um, liberal arguments, uh, to try to get around Yohannine usage of ego I mean. Ego Aimi in John is being used in specific context. Now listen to what he's saying. Unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. Um, did Moses ever say anything like that? David, Abraham, any of them? Did they ever make a... 
confession of who they are, the the very standard of whether you would have eternal life or not, whether you die in your sins. No, unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. And so the immediate response is, well, who are you? And Jesus continues on, and of course, what that leads to, remember what that leads to, uh, you know, if lift up the Son of Man, you'll know that I am He, and He has been provided in the translation, by the way. And I do nothing from myself, but I speak these things as the Father taught me. And He who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to Him. As He was speaking these things, remember John 8, 30, many believed in Him. Now notice the term believed here. It's outlined on the right above my little picture there. Epistusan is aorist. Saving faith in John is always present tense. These who believe on him in John 8.30 are going to be picking up stones to stone him by the end of the chapter. So there is non-saving faith in Johannian usage. But the next use that we want to look at of a absolute use of ego aimi is at the end of this chapter, John 8.58. This is the one most people know. Uh, because Jesus says, uh, John 8, 3, um, John 8, 2, the Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, and the prophets also, and you say, If anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death, ever. Surely you are not greater than our father Abraham, who died. The prophets died too. Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. And you have not known him, but I know him. And if I say that I do not know him, I will be a liar like you. But I do know him and keep his word. Your father, Abraham, rejoiced to see my day. And he saw it and was glad. Now, we haven't gotten to the I am. That's 858. You know that. But keep this in mind. Jesus is escalating this. He could have de-escalated this anytime he wanted to, but he didn't. He is escalating this. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad. When did Abraham see Jesus' day? When did Abraham see Jesus' day? I would like to suggest, don't have time to flesh it out right now, but I'd like to suggest to you is by the Oaks of Mamre. When Yahweh came walking with two angels. And the two angels went down to Sodom and Gomorrah. And Yahweh walked with Abram. And Abram did the 40 righteous men, 20 righteous men, 10 righteous men. Let's make a deal thing. And then Yahweh on earth rained fire and brimstone. Genesis 19.24 on Yahweh from in heaven, on Sodom and Gomorrah. Yeah. Hmm. Your father Abraham rejoiced in my day. So I was glad. And the Jews said to him, You are not yet 50 years old, and you have seen Abraham? And Jesus' response to them is, Amen, amen, lego humin. Truly, truly, I say to you, Prin Abraham genestai ego aimi. Before Abraham was, I am. Abraham was, I am. Now, if we want to take 
Anthony's simplistic little thing who can't read Greek. Um, Jesus said, before Abraham was, yes! Before Abraham was, yes! No. Before Abraham was, I am. And the Jews got it. Because what does it say? Therefore they took up stones that they might cast upon him. But Jesus hid himself and went out from the temple. They knew what he was saying. Abraham saw my day. Before Abraham was, I am. I am. They pick up stones to stone him. Pretty straightforward, but we're not done. I'm going to skip the third and come back to it because I want to close with it. This is, this is one I love to take people to. Because... Um, basically, John 20, 28 and this, you will, you will be, if you want to watch a Unitarian just flopping around and just coming up with some of the most absurd, acontextual statements, take them to one of these two places. John 20, 28. My Lord and my God. They're both addressed to Jesus. He can't get around it. Jesus identifies it as a statement of faith. You can't get around it. But in John chapter 18, this one isn't quite as often used. Um, the soldiers are come to address Jesus. And so in 18.4, so Jesus, knowing all things that were coming upon him, went forth to them and said, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus the Nazarene. Now, now look, at, look at how John does this in verse 5. Um... He says to them, Ego I me, I am. And then John stops and gives us some context. And Judas also, who was betraying him, was standing with them. So Judas the betrayer is there. And they come and they say, Jesus of Nazareth and Jesus Nazarene, and Jesus says, Ego I me. And so notice what he does in verse 6. So when he said to them, and then repeats it, Ego I mean. So John makes sure we want, he wants us to be absolutely crystal clear. He doesn't just say it once. He says, when he said these words, Ego I mean, Ap elthon aista hapiso kai epison kamai. What happens? They drew back and fell on the ground. When he said two words, Ego I me. Ego I me. Now, Unitarians will come up with... <laughs> they, they come up with some really funny stuff. They, they really, really do. Um, Unitarians, I, I guess... I, I guess, I forget which one came up with this one. But they said, well, it, it was Jesus' purity. It, it, it was his holiness and his purity that just overwhelmed them. And I'm like, okay, so you're telling me that Roman soldiers, upon encountering a pure person, fall back on their tushes. 
And this is why John emphasizes for us. He repeats it twice. Ego aimi. They fall back on the ground. At the utterance of ego aimi. And it's because of Jesus' purity. When it's all you got, it's all you got. But, like I said, that that's three of the four of the absolute usages. But this one... Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try something here that I haven't tried before. And Rich is now scared. Um, because it could be the end of the... Oh, it goes, it defaults back to camera one. Okay, well, that's fine. It doesn't follow whatever camera you were using before that. Okay, that's fine. That's cool. Um, we learned something. It's probably a way to fix it, and I don't know how to. I haven't figured out all the buttons yet. But, hey, we're, we're, getting, we're doing pretty well here. John chapter 13, verse 18. I do not speak about all of you. I know the ones I have chosen. But that the scripture may be fulfilled, he who eats my bread is lift up his heel against me. So this is, oh, okay, so Rich can do it. I'll bet you it's through the software rather than from the unit itself, huh? I'm guessing, because I have the software too. This is what scares Rich, is that, that it's actually running right there. So I can, I see, I see what's down there, and I can have it up here too. I just need to learn how to do it. Back to John chapter 13. Um, what do we have here? Night of Jesus' betrayal, establishment of the Lord's Supper, etc., etc. Jesus is ministering to the disciples, and in this text, he says, there is one, he says, I know whom I have chosen. I know whom I have chosen. But that the scripture may be fulfilled, he who eats my bread is lift up his heel against me. So there, the, He's talking about the betrayer. And he's talking about the fact that he is going to be betrayed. Now that is a revelation of a future event. The soldiers haven't come yet. This is John 13, not John 18. So Jesus is prophesying about the future. And that's the context that verse 19 has. Make sure verse 19 is, yep, it's right there above the picture. He says, op arti, from now on, legohumin, pra tu genestai. I'd say, before, infinitival form of genemai, before it happens, before it takes place. Hina, in order that, purpose clause, hence in the subjunctive, piscuseta hatan genetai hati ego aimi. In order that, when it takes place, hatan genetai, you may believe hati ego aimi, that I am. Just as in John 8.24, unless you believe that I am, you'll die in your sins. Now, I tell you before it comes to pass, so when it happens, you may believe that I am. The Jews picked up stones to stone him when he did that in John 8.58. The soldiers fell back upon the ground, John 18. But in John 13, Jesus is speaking to the disciples. And he says, I'm telling you before it happens, so when it does happen, you may believe that I am. Now, 
here's to me this is one of the most one of the coolest things ever okay one of the coolest things ever what verse do Jehovah's Witnesses get their name from you know it is a verse that many of us have memorized that deal with uh, Mormons because Mormonism believes that men can become gods and so one of the best verses blowing up the font here for you all Isaiah 4 through 10 before me there is no God formed there will be none after me God says there is no God before me Mormonism says there was God says there's no God after me Mormonism says there will be millions so a lot of us have the end of Isaiah 43.10 memorized, but the beginning says, You are my witnesses, declares Yahweh, and my servant whom I have chosen, so you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me, there was no God formed, there will be none after me. Okay? Well, I had memorized the whole verse when I started memorizing verses about Mormonism and stuff like that. So I knew what the first part was. But I hadn't really listened. Do you see it? Do you see? Right here. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord God. And literally it says, and my child, my servant, whom I have chosen. Hina note kai pistuseta kai suneta hati ego aimi. Now these are all in the subjunctive because it's a hina clause. In order that you may know and believe and understand that I am. Now, that is ki anahu. Anahu is the Hebrew phrase that is used repeatedly in Isaiah and a couple of the minor prophets. It's a name for God. And how is it translated in the Greek Septuagint? Egoimi. Egoimi. But there's more. Do you see? I, I tweeted this earlier today, so you could you could actually I put it so you could see the two lines together. This in Isaiah forty three is in the context of Yahweh revealing the future. It's in the prophetic context. What's John thirteen? Prophetic context: betrayal of Judas. And Jesus says, so that when it happens, you are my witnesses. Isaiah forty three. So that you may know and believe, pistuseta, exact form, identical, and believe, believe what? Hati ego I mean. Jesus is quoting Isaiah 43.10 of himself in John 13.19. Unless you're going to say Jesus didn't know the Old Testament. <laughs> oh, it's, just, it's just a coincidence. No, it's not. Same context. And Jesus is saying, I'm going to tell you before it happens, so when it happens, you may believe that I am. That's what Yahweh said. That's Yahweh speaking, and Jesus quotes it of himself. That's either blasphemy or Jesus is Yahweh. And you have a consistent utilization of ego I me. John 8, 24, 8, 58, 13, 19, 18, 5 through 6. Never look at John 13, 19 the same again, huh? It is truly amazing stuff. So, there you go. 
Uh, like I said, these Unitarians, um, just give us opportunity after opportunity, after opportunity, after opportunity to edify the saints, encourage believers because we have the truth and they don't. We believe all of scripture. They only believe a part of it. We believe it all. And so it's pretty easy to respond to their arguments. If you are familiar with the testimony uh, that is found in Scripture. So, there you go. I really hope you enjoy digging into the text like this because I enjoy showing you these things. But please, um, don't just... This isn't just something to use in online battles. This is... When I hear of people pointing these things out to Jehovah's Witnesses at the door, talking to Unitarians at, at work, talking to your Muslim neighbor... That's the whole reason we do it. Just having this stuff stuck in your brain, big deal. Unless you use it. Hey, once you, once you know it, you're responsible for it. Once you know it, you're responsible for it. So, um, please, utilize it. Um, and do it in such a way as to be honoring to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. I'm not sure when we will be back again. Um, but it maybe tomorrow maybe later in the day later in the week we'll see uh depends i've got a lot of other programs to do and stuff but we'll see you next time on the dividing line god bless